And let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. I'm taking a little bit of a break from reading those great sermons from the past. And I wanted to go ahead and address this next parable because of its relationship to the parable from last week. So that we might recognize the connection, the couplet itself. So... If you take your Bibles, open to Matthew 13. I want to read from verse 33 through 35. And let's ask the Lord's blessing on us. If you would stand with me. And then we'll pray and read this word. Let's pray. Now, Father, come to us this morning as our Father, as a good Father, and give us instruction, give us correction. Lord, help us to grow in grace, and Lord, show us the way, and Lord, help us to understand Your Word so that we might live faithfully according to it. Let not our zeal be empty or in vain, but let it be substantiated and, Lord, grounded in the Word of truth. Lord, we want to be be complete Christians, mature Christians. We want all that we are, our whole person to come in conformity to the truth of your word. And, and so we know, Father, that you are using the preaching of the gospel. You are using the preaching of, of this text this morning to accomplish your most glorious and perfect will in our lives. And I pray that all of us here listening to the word preached will know you, Lord, truly seek after you. Truly have that earnest desire to be taught and instructed. Lord, where there is any unbelief, Lord, take it away. Destroy it with your spirit and word. Bring great light. You are the light of this world, as we have sung this morning. And wherever darkness resides in our thinking, in our emotions, Lord, in our affections, in, all, in any place, Lord, we pray that you would come even this, at this very hour and grow us up and teach us and instruct us and train us up in righteousness. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Chapter 13 of Matthew, verse 33. And he spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. And all these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, and I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Brothers and sisters, let me briefly remind you this morning of the broader context of this series of parables on the kingdom of God. The first two parables seem to work in tandem together. They are related. We have a sower and we have seed and there's a relationship between the two. And our Lord helps us understand the meaning of those parables because He interprets them for us. These latter two, the one we looked at last week and this morning, have no interpretation given 
for them. They are for us to take and apply with what we've already learned. We should be able to take what we've already seen given to us in these other parables and what Christ has said about those parables and what they mean to those who truly believe and seek after God. And we're to take that and and to use them to help us understand Scripture, particularly this portion of Scripture. Now that fits perfectly with what we know about interpreting the Word of God. Our confession of faith in chapter 1 teaches us that the Word of God is its own infallible interpreter. That is, we are to take Scripture and compare it with Scripture particularly those passages that are dark and and mystical and mysterious, if you will, those enigmatic passages that seem to bring great confusion, we are to take those passages of Scripture and interpret them in the clearer passages of Scripture. Always letting Scripture speak plainly and clearly. And we are to never build a doctrine or truth upon those obscure passages of Scripture. That's a no-no. And that's something cults do all the time. They want to use the the obscure passages. They want to use those passages that are not clear and build a whole system of truth and doctrine on them. And we're not to do that. We are to make sure that we hold to those clear teaching of God's Word. Those are primary to help us understand the uh, passages that are not so clear. Well, I don't think necessarily that that's the case in the passage I just read. I believe that we should be able to make sense and to understand it uh, clearly. So the context of the parable is that of conflict. That of conflict. And we find this conflict. We find this conflict... If you will, take and turn just back a page over to Matthew 12. Matthew 12. We're going to sort of get to the end of this conflict, but to understand that this was the the impetus for Christ launching into a series of parables to help His disciples and the crowd understand the kingdom of God. That's what it's for. Matthew 10, we have Jesus going around healing people. We have Him casting out demons. And then we have the assault of the Pharisees accusing Jesus of being in league with Satan. And so we see that conflict there. And of course, Jesus addresses that by saying, a kingdom cannot be divided in itself and stand. Satan's kingdom could not stand if he was in league with Satan's kingdom. So he, he destroys the logic of their argument. But look there at verse 50 of Matthew chapter 12. I want to show you what Jesus is going to open up and explain to us. And I hope we all can see it. Let me back up to verse 46. It says, While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? 
And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples. And he said, Behold my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Okay, so there in these words, we have what Jesus is fixing to expound on and explain. Remember what's going on. Jesus has come and He's began with John the Baptist and the disciples to preach the kingdom of God. They went out preaching a, a kingdom of God in repentance and belief in Jesus Christ. They, have, they are suffering opposition. Now let me think, I want you to think about this. Why is Jesus being opposed? Is He being opposed because He's sinning? Is he being opposed because he, he's a drunkard? He's a rebel rouser? Is he immoral? Has he been proven to be guilty of some fallacious and scandalous sin? No, he's being opposed because he is doing the will of his Father. He's doing righteousness. He's casting out demons. He's healing the, the lame, he's, he's, he's giving sight to blind eyes. But he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He's preaching that all men need to repent and believe in the Son of God sent by the Father into the world. Now I want you to think about this. The opposition is not coming because of unrighteousness. Jesus is actually being opposed because of His righteousness. Because it's such His righteousness... It's such a, it's so clearly antithetical to their own righteousness. Their own righteousness where they trusted in their own, their own righteousness. Their own good works. Their, their own kind thoughts about themselves. I mean, they would rather accuse Jesus of sinning against God because He healed on the Sabbath day. And Jesus said, you don't understand the, the Scriptures. You don't understand how merciful your heavenly Father is to have mercy and works of kindness are acceptable on the Sabbath day. And you won't lay a hand. You won't lift a finger to help any of them. We're going to get back to this a little bit later, but I want you to see how verse 50, Jesus is really saying here, listen, the kingdom of God is about obedience to my Father's will. That's what it's about. And all the things that impede that obedience, self-righteousness, pride, arrogance, hypocrisy. These things are stumbling blocks, not only for those who think they are in the kingdom of God, but for those that want to be in the kingdom, right? There's no small amount of things the world can point a finger at in the church, right? Similar to the situation here, isn't it? So that's the conflict. Jesus is saying, okay, listen. What I want to talk to you about is obedience. What I want to talk to you about is that if you really want to know my Father, you're going to have to obey Him. You're going to have to serve Him. My family are those who do and perform the will of my Father. And we see the parable of the sower. That obedience is called fruit. The seed goes out and the parable tells us that when that seed fell on good soil, 
That good soil is that heart prepared by the Father to receive the seed. What does that soil produce? Fruit. What's the, what's the, what's the beginning of the fruit? Obedience. Obedience to what? Faith. Believe. Repent. These are all fruits of obedience. Why? Because Jesus said, repent. If Jesus commands sinners to repent, what's the first step of obedience? To repent. To acknowledge yourself a sinner. And to recognize not only that you are a sinner, but that you have sins that need repenting of. And then it's belief and trust. Now that we recognize that we are a sinner and we have sins that, that truly and rightly bring guilt to our lives and condemn us before our Father, we must now seek a sacrifice. We must now seek atonement. We must believe in Christ. We must accept His life in place of our lives. We must accept His perfect living before the Father, His death on the cross, His resurrection as a sign that the Father has accepted and received His sacrifice and raised Him up and seated Him at His own right hand with all power, glory, and authority over the nations of the world. And He says, trust in Me, believe in Me, and I'll hold on to you. You must forsake your own righteousness and you must be clothed in my righteousness. That's the righteousness my Father receives. He goes on and he talks about the differences in the church. There'll be those when he talks about the, the parable of the wheat and the tares. And he says, look, there's going to be always conflict in the kingdom of God. Satan is always sowing next to the, the, the Christ where Christ comes and sows the Word of God through His ordained ministers and where the Bible is taught, guess what Satan does? Satan also sows falsehoods and lies and error. And he's always seeking to compromise and, 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 and to bring uh, ill influences into the church through false believers, false teachers. And we're going to, and this parable of the leaven helps us understand that. And we see that parable of the mustard seed. Jesus is wanting to instill confidence. And He says, listen, I know there's, it looks as if that the kingdom of God can't withstand this onslaught of Satan and the Pharisees. And there's so much going against us. He says, but I want you to understand something. God's ways are not our ways. And I don't want to re-preach last week's sermon, but... You know, God's methods, God's power, and God's promises. Those are the things we hold to. I can't change my own heart, and I can't change your heart, and you can't change my heart, and you can't change your heart. But God can. And He does. And He promises to do this. And that's what faith rests on. Faith rests upon that promise to be changed and to be made a new creation in Christ. Lord, you said it. I believe it. I believe it. Now, this parable that we have before us is coupled with the parable of the mustard seed. And let's look at it. And Jesus uses a very familiar scene right there in those few verses where he says right there in verse 33, notice it's a very simple story. He says, he spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. 
This is such a familiar scene. Every hearer on that shore of the Sea of Galilee would have understood exactly what Jesus was talking about. It's such a common scene. The scene of a woman taking a piece of fermented sourdough bread and kneading it into a lump and setting it apart so that it might rise over time. This would have been a common scene in every household of the Hebrews. There's no telling how many hundreds of times Jesus saw His own mother or His sisters in there kneading the bread, kneading the bread and taking that that one piece of fermented dough that they would reserve out of the last batch in order to bring into that dough to help it rise so that they would make bread. A simple story. It's a familiar scene. Nothing nothing extraordinary about the scene itself, but it's one that if we spend some time thinking about can teach us so much. How important was this scene, this scenario? Think about this. It wasn't just a familiar scene, but there was something even sentimental about fermented bread. Now, you know that bread was certainly a a staple food of that area. Uh, Bread was like our meat. You know, we like to eat meat with every meal. Well, they would have eaten bread with every meal. It was a, a very important part of their culture and, and what they were about, and they would make a lot of bread at one time so that that bread may last for several weeks. And then they would make more bread. So it was something that was constantly being done. And, and even in a ceremonial sense, a Hebrew bride would receive from her mother, and I want you to think about the picture. Here's a, a young Hebrew woman about to have a, her own family. And her mother would come to her and would gift her a piece of fermented bread from her batch so that the young woman could begin her own household to make bread. And there was a continuation of household to household from generation to generation, this fermented bread. And there was a connection there. Isn't that something? There was a connection there to that that young Hebrew woman would begin her family with a piece of fermented dough given to her by her mother and that would last her her whole marriage. And you want to think about that dough going from batch to batch and family to family to marriage to marriage. That's very important. I mean, you can't make bread or you can't make good bread without it rising, Right? So what is Jesus trying to help us understand here? What is the meaning of the parable itself? Well, first of all, we can see that there's nothing extraordinary or extraordinary about it. It's simple. It's plain. It's teaching us a very modest thing, something that's almost indiscernible. That the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who takes that fermented bread, that, that small fermented piece, and kneads it into the lump so that all of it might rise and make bread. 
Something almost indiscernible. We don't know, and it's not meant to be a scientific interpretation. I'm not going to go into how yeast or the fermentation process works, but it's the catalyst. Without it, it doesn't rise. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is like that. It's indiscernible. But yet it works in the lump. It works in the heart. It works in the heart. That's the idea here. The Word of God is preached. It goes out. Jesus takes the Word that is preached and He makes it effectual. Not just that we would hear it with our ears, but that it might be planted in our hearts. And from there, it would ferment our lives spiritually so that every area of our whole being, every every part of our whole being would come under God's grace word and be affected and we would mature and grow in grace in our thinking, in our emotions, in our discernment, how we see things, things we enjoy, things we don't like. All of that being improved, all of that coming into conformity with the kingdom of God, with the things we're taught. By the Word of God through Christ. You see, there's this mindset today that we can come and we can just make a profession of faith and there's not, there's not much expectation left after that. You, well, I, I made a profession of faith. I, what else is there? There's so much more, brothers and sisters. Your profession of faith is but the beginning of your walk with God in Christ. It's the beginning of growing up, walking and maturing with Him, coming to maturity in, in your mind and in your thinking, the things you, how you should see things, perceive things, understand things. Uh, let me give you an example. Turn over in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, this is now not going to explain the whole text, but look with me at verse 10. Notice how Paul talks about that when Christ ascended into heaven. How do we know Christ ascended into heaven? How do we know he sits at the God, at the right hand of his Father? Well, we know this because now He exercises dominion from that place. Part of that dominion is bestowing upon the church, His bride, His body, gifts, officers, pastors, evangelists, prophets, teachers, and so on. And now notice what He says. So we see right there in verse 11, He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Now look at verse 12. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Now stop there and look at me. Notice he says, listen, the reason you have these gifts, these grace gifts, these pastors and teachers, is so that we would be built up. We would be built up, made strong, made mature. That's the whole idea in the Greek language, that we would be brought to maturity. That we, and now notice what, the reason we know that's the interpretation of the text. Look at verse um, 14. As a result, 
that is, of this maturity, this fullness, we're no longer to be children, these spiritual children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and craftiness and deceitful scheming. I mean, Paul makes it clear that Christ now, the head of the church, the head of the nations, has bestowed upon His kingdom officers, these gospel officers, and now they're responsible for teaching and preaching the people of God, the children of God, how to grow up so that they're no longer children. So they're not long, no longer being duped by these false doctrines and false teachers and all these other things so they may grow up in maturity, growing up into the head which is Christ. Christ is sort of the, the, uh, the epitome of maturity. Why? Because as He walked on earth, what did our Lord tell us? I come to do the will of my Father. My Father's will is my bread. My obedience to my Father is my bread and water. I can't live without it. That's what Jesus was saying. I come, I exist in this body given to me by my Father that I will lay down for a sacrifice for your sins and I come to eat and drink the will of my Father. I come to speak His words. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why? Because I come telling you all that the Father has given me to tell you. That's the, that's the picture there. Okay? Now, what we already learned in Matthew 13 is that there are some that doesn't like the picture. There are some that really don't like the Father, and they demonstrate they really don't like the Father by hating Christ. And that's what Jesus says in John 6 and 8 and 10. He says, listen, you, if, you, if you understood me, you'd love my Father. But because you oppose me, you oppose my Father. To have the Son is to have the Father. To have the Father is to believe in the Son. Okay? You can see the correlations there. And that's what's going on. That's what's taking place. Now, we look back at Matthew 13. So we see that this kingdom is being preached. It's, preached. it's likened unto a woman kneading bread and inserting into this bread uh, some, some fer, a piece of fermented dough, a small piece of fermented dough that it would leaven the whole lump. There are some that would come to this passage of Scripture and they'd say, well, leaven is always bad. And they'll cite the Old Testament. And they'll say, well, remember back in the Exodus... In Exodus 12, the, the Hebrews had to do away with the leaven. They couldn't have leaven in the house. They had to leave quickly, so they had to make the Passover meal without leaven. They didn't have time for the bread to rise. So they had to eat unleavened bread. We have the, the use of our Lord Jesus in the New Testament. And He uses this idea of leaven in a negative way. Turn forward to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verse 6. And Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And of course, I'm not going to go in about how the disciples fully didn't understand what Jesus was saying, but we see there when Jesus is talking about the leaven of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, what Jesus is saying is, look, be careful of their teaching. This false teaching will in time have a profound effect on you. 
The idea of leaven, just that little bit of error in your head, in your heart, will have a permeating effect in what you do. 1 Corinthians 6, or 1 Corinthians 5, look there with me. Now this is in the negative sense, but I think it'll help us, it'll help us understand what Jesus is doing in the positive sense of the word. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 6. Now notice in this passage, this chapter of Scripture is really important because when Paul writes this to the Corinthians, he is really having to scold them and rebuke them sharply. Here's the situation. The situation is someone in the church there has taken to themselves their stepmother as a, as a wife, treating her as a wife. A very immoral thing to do. It's incest. A form of incest. Paul staggered by this report. And he has to deal with these Christians at Corinth that, you know, are not really doing anything about this practice. Notice what he says. He goes, I have decided in verse 5, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Well, see, they boasted that they were very mature. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you were in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now Paul plays on this Old Testament terminology and seen by saying listen you think you know so much you you are so arrogant to think that you can allow this to go on in your church and it not affect you because what do we say when we want to dismiss our responsibilities well that's not me they don't have any you know i I don't care what so and so does doesn't affect me paul says you are a fool you're foolish You're arrogant. Paul says, do you not know? Listen, if you're going to gather and worship the Lord, what does he say do? Clean the worship service out of this known wickedness. Now, I'm not saying, look, you do not need to go spying in people's rooms. Paul's not saying go spy out wickedness. He said, look, this is a known wickedness. This is something that's known. This is obvious. This is not being hidden. This is in plain sight. Address it and deal with it. Clean out this wickedness so that you might be presentable to God in your worship. And that's sort of the idea here, isn't it? That's what, this is what uh, Jesus is doing. He's using the positive sense of this in Matthew 13 when he talks about the kingdom of heaven is like this leaven. This, this leaven here is this, this righteousness. It's this word of gospel truth. It's that It's that saving grace that comes into the life of men that's implanted in the heart of men and it comes to ferment his whole life. You think about this parable, it's just, you know, really one verse. And of course it wasn't a verse when 
when Matthew wrote it or anything like that, but we come to know it as a verse of Scripture. It didn't have verses when Matthew wrote it. The point that he's trying to make here is that very little goes a long way in the kingdom of God, just as very little in the kingdom of Satan goes a long way. Brothers and sisters, I want you to consider this principle. If you do not address sin in your life, what's the outcome? How does sin begot sin? Most of us are old enough to recognize, you know what, I see that principle being true in my life. When I don't address certain thought patterns, I see how they produce ill affections. You know, if I go home and I think, you know, well, let's, let's not make it. When you, when you adopt this mind that nobody loves you, nobody cares for you, everybody's out to get you, how will you begin to interpret everything that you hear? Sarcastically. Rudely. Coming from a mean spirit. A taunting spirit. Taking what people say and saying, you don't mean it. You will begin to judge everybody through, not through love, but through that sin of self-defeat, that sin of, of self-loathing. Nobody appreciates me. Nobody loves me the way I believe I need to be loved. That sin will beget more sin in your life. Just as righteousness will beget righteousness. If I come and I say, you know what? It's really not about me. I'm going to bless my brother. I'm going to bless my sister. I'm going to come and I'm going to smile, not because it's fake, because I truly, earnestly, sincerely want my brother and my sister to be encouraged that we're together in worshiping the Lord. We're together in the service of this home and family. That we are on the same team. That I'm with you and you are with me. And we're together in this. And we can work all these things out by God's grace and His Word of truth. We have a, we have a plan here. I want you to recognize, brothers and sisters, let's apply it to the church. What happens when a family begins to think ill thoughts about the church? It always spirals out of control. When you begin nitpicking a church, and is there a perfect church? Are you going to go anywhere where, where God's grace isn't being exhibited in the lives of sinners, right? Sinners saved by grace. But when you start down that path of what we call nitpicking, pointing out everybody's errors, everybody's faults, and how, how everyone just not as righteous as you and as faithful as you. It's just a matter of time before you discourage others around you. In, in fact, let me show you. This is a passage we're going to go to, but I want to show you the biblical principle. Turn to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, and then we'll make some application and be done this morning. But this is the principle that's at work 
in Hebrews 12. And we're going to come back to this text, but I want to show you this point. Look at verse 15. Or, or look at verse 14. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Now, what the writer of Hebrews says that, number one, we ought to be in pursuit of peace. Let's walk with peace with one another. As, as far as it depends upon us, let's be at peace biblically with one another. Not fake peace, false peace, not overlooking things that ought to be addressed, but biblical peace. And he says, there is this sanctification without which no man will see the Lord. What he's saying is all who come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ will be sanctified, will be edified, and will grow up into that maturity. Now, brothers and sisters, you need to believe that about your own salvation. You need to grow up in Christ. Stop being children and grow up. Now, look at verse 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness Springs, springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That root of bitterness is the person I'm talking about. That root of bitterness is that person that for one reason or another, there's no reason to go into all the reasons why, because there are multiple reasons why. They are at odds with God's grace. And they are miserable in themselves, and they're purpose is to make everybody miserable around them. That's the bitter root that springs up and defiles many. We see it in Numbers 16. We see it in many other places of Scripture. Instead of a great encourager to walk with Christ, they become a discourager and focus on all the various little things. Notice like like this, he said, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal, who you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Let's just mention, you know, Esau was a great discourager to his parents. You go back and you read that portion in the Old Testament. Why? Because he was an immoral person. He was a, he was a, a, a rebel rouser. He was a, a very harsh and violent person, but he was very sexually moral. And it talked about it was a grief to his mom and dad. Not an encourager, but a grief. And you can imagine the tension that, that, that he brought to the family by being such a person, right? Just as that person you know, that, that comes up in your environments in church or home or whatever the case may be, instead of a blessing, they become a great hindrance and a discourager. Okay? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little bit goes a long way. All will be leavened. If you look at verse 33, he says, And a winch woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it all was leavened. All was leavened. You're thinking about Hebrews chapter 12, and before I end with application, I want to make this point. And I want to help you understand, brothers and sisters, what God has started in your salvation, He's going to bring to completion. He didn't, he didn't come into your life for you to be, to, for you to be halfway okay. He came into your life to work in your mind, will, and affections His Word. 
That means that the Word of God begins to govern the way you think. That out of your thoughts, that the Word of God begins to govern how you feel about things. Not loving the wrong things, loving the right things. Not hating the right things, loving the right things. You see, we must bring our whole being under that dominion of God's Word and truth so that we would begin to walk more like Christ, right? And say, our, our food and drink is to do the will of our Father, like He did. Not as perfectly. We don't do that to save us. We do that to prove that He's working in us and that salvation. We don't do it to be saved. Our obedience has nothing to do with saving ourselves. Obedience is nothing more than the fruit of the Spirit and Word being worked into us so that we would then offer outward obedience and be a sign that we are the children of God. We are part of the kingdom of God. That's why, brothers and sisters, listen to me. People can talk about knowing Jesus. They can talk about loving the Lord. They can talk. They can cry buckets of tears singing hymns and, and all of these praise songs. They can lift their hands. They can do all of these, these things. Yeah, but if they don't offer obedience in their lives to the Word of God, they don't know God. Because that was the very essence of Jesus' life. And that's what Jesus said, Who are my father? I mean, who are my mother? Who are my brothers and sisters? Who are they? They're the ones who do the will of my Father. Who's in my family? Who are my brothers and sisters? Obedience. That's the, the true litmus test of a Christian. It's not, it's not that guilt. And I, I want to say this. You know, it's not that person always laments their sin. Oh, woe is me. Woe is me. But they never go from woe is me to praise God for grace and salvation. Praise God for forgiveness. God doesn't want you to remain in the woe is me state. And I'm not saying there are not times in your life that you need a good lamenting of your sin. Right? But you have to go beyond that. Because that's where Christ is taking you. That's where the kingdom of God is taking you, that you might walk maturely, that you would grow. Look, if that's what you should understand, then what should you be practicing? What are the things you should put your hands to? What are the things you need to be committed to? Making this happen, right? Not doing the things that hinder your growth in the kingdom of God, but doing those things that is going to enhance, establish, foster, and support that growth in the kingdom of God. And, and, and put off those things that will keep you from growing up in Christ. Let's look at a couple of passages of Scripture. We've already looked at, in fact, turn back to Hebrews 12. We're going to do some flipping quickly. Hebrews 12 I'm going to have to move quickly if I'm going to hit at least all the passages that I want to do here. Okay, Hebrews 12. Now notice um, verse 7. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as, as with sons. So what son is there whom his father does not discipline? 
But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good so that we may share in His holiness all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness okay what's the point the point is all that are truly the sons and daughters of god he disciplines us to what bring about fruit all right john 15 turn to john 15 John 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, He prunes so that it may bear more fruit. That's the, what's God doing in our lives? He's bringing, uh, he's bringing to bear the eternal word of truth in our life so that whatever we go through, whatever hardships we go through in life, the word of God comes to bear in our lives. We, we wrestle with it. We interact with it so that it permeates the way we think, the way we need to feel about things, the way we need to see things and judge things and discern things so that we grow up and bear more fruit and more fruit and more fruit. What's the goal of your life? Be a fruitful Christian. Be a fruitful witness for the Father. Why? Because, listen, listen as he goes on. Uh, verse 3, You are already cr- clean because of the word which I have spoken. Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of it, itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Look at verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You want to glorify your Father? What, what must you do? Bear fruit. And more fruit. And more fruit. And more fruit, right? Until He takes you home. Until He takes you home. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Verse 6. For I am confident, Paul says, I am confident. Now in the Greek, this means emphatically, what he's saying is, I am uh, this... I'm sure of this. No doubt. I am confident in this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Look at verse 9. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things which are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Listen to me. The Scriptures are full of these kinds of 
text that teaches us that it is the life and path of a Christian to grow in knowledge, to grow in discernment, to grow in judgment, to grow in righteousness, to grow in personal obedience. Never to be content with the the, the beginnings. Never to just... Just be okay with repentance and, well, I've made a profession of faith. I've joined a church, but never excelling and exceeding. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. We must have that mindset of being professional Christians. Now, I use the term to implant an idea in your head. You know, we do a job. How many of us could keep our job if we didn't grow in it? If we said, no, I'm not going to learn anything else. I mean, how many marriages could be, could be sustained if, if the couple couldn't grow together, if they couldn't learn about each other, if they couldn't learn to put up with one another and to understand the strengths and weaknesses of one another? How many of those marriages last? All of this implies growth. It, Im- it implies movement, going from here to here, just as it does in your job. We must, as Christians, become... I don't mean this in a technical sense. I'm just talking about application. We must become more in everything that God has given to us. Desire more. Let's bring this to a close and an application. Because there are other texts we could go to, but we don't have time to go to all of them. And I do want to bring this main text as a closing of this sermon. Go into the Psalms and go to Psalm 78. I want to point out something here. If you notice that in Matthew 13, verse 34 and 30 says, All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Now, brothers and sisters, I could have gone through a whole list of passages of scriptures that explain what hard hearts do. What a hard heart does. One of the things what Jesus is having to deal with as he is dealing with conflict What's the conflict? The conflict is not over Jesus doing righteousness. It's over their hatred for the Father. It's over their protection of their own kingdom. It's over the protection of their own righteousness. They hate Christ because they hate the Father. Christ is the representative of the Father and they hate Christ. And Christ is trying to show them, listen, I come to do good. But only those who seek me and love me And only those who have hearts, the good soil, tilled by the farmer to receive the seed, bears fruit. Only the bread, the dough, that's been leavened, right? Who leavens it? The Father, right? The Spirit puts the Word in our hearts, right? Only they bear fruit. Only they are changed. I've seen it. I've been a Christian long enough to see. Facebook is sometimes a sad, sad place because on there you will see people that you've known for 30 and 40 years that used to be on fire for the Lord. I mean, there are people that I wanted to emulate. There are people I want to be like. I want my wife to be like that woman. I want to be like that man. And guess what? Today they're apostate. 
Today, they look and talk, they speak, they act, and they are just like the world. They have left the church. Something went wrong. And what happened is that word of truth never was in their hearts. Because Jesus tells us that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The word of God will have an effect. Look at Psalm 78. Now listen, this psalm, and I'm going to read the whole psalm, just the beginning of it. This psalm is a testament to God's goodness. We talked about that this morning. It's a testament to God's goodness. But it's also a testament to God's people that forget God's goodness. Notice what it says. Listen to me. It says, oh, listen, verse 1. Oh, listen, my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which, you, which we have heard and known and our fathers told us. Now, did we not just read that in Matthew 13? Here's what the psalmist is saying. He says, you know what? The prophet's going to come and he's going to speak these things that you've already heard. They're, they're old and dark sayings. You know why they're old and dark to your ears now? Because your fathers didn't teach you these things. Your mothers didn't teach you this in your crib. When your mother nestled you on her breast, she didn't pray over you. She didn't catechize you. She didn't teach you the Word of God. You forgot. They didn't speak of the goodness of God. And you know what? You forgot them. Verse 4. Now, verse 3. Which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. That's a long time ago. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wondrous works that He has done. He says, listen, what happens when families, Christian homes, forget to pass on the praise, the goodness, the doctrine, the glory, and the kingdom of God to their children? They forget. They can't discern these things. When they hear these sermons, they don't know what to do with them. Why? Because they never heard them growing up. And this is the crowd that Jesus is dealing with. He says, look, and I've opened my mouth. These are dark sayings to your eyes and ears. You don't know these things. Why? Because you have forgotten me and your hearts have grown hard and it's full of pride and arrogance and hypocrisy and you can't hear what I'm saying. You can't understand these parables because you love sin, not righteousness. Notice this psalm. Notice what he says. He says, listen, we will not, this is this act of repentance. We will not conceal them from their children. We will tell the congregation and to come to the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wondrous works that He has done. Now listen, verse 5. For He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which He had commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. And the, gen- and the generation to come might know, even yet the children yet to be unborn, that they may rise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of the Lord, but keep His commandments. Here's what he says. He says, look, what happens when hearts grow hard or compromised by the world? We stop teaching our children. We want our children to be successful in the world's eyes. 
We want our children to do all these other things. But we forget to do the most important thing. And that is enforce with them the goodness of God. Your God is so gracious. Your God is so good. Your God saved your mom and dad and He saved this, this Hebrew nation. He brought us out of the land of Egypt, out of that fiery furnace, out of the grips of, of, of Satan himself and Pharaoh. Our Father delivered us. And I want to tell you about this. And that's why we take and we perform the Passover. This is why we do these things. I want you never to forget how good God is to us. And He says in verse 8, He says, we don't be like their fathers. Now notice, look, here's the problem. A stubborn and rebellious generation a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. That's the problem. That's the problem. Our hearts grow hard to the things of God. And families don't hand it down to their children. You know, children get tired. They're like, oh, you've got to talk to me about God. You know where that comes from? That's hard heart. It comes from, from, being, in, it comes from being infiltrated by the world. The world doesn't want to hear about God. Or they don't want to hear about the God of Scripture. They look, God's no problem. Jesus is no problem. But it's the Jesus of Scripture that commands repentance and belief in Him. That's the problem. Obedience. You mean I can't do what I want to do? No, not in God's kingdom you can't. You've got to submit to the will of the Father. Brothers and sisters, what does all this mean? Only those who are ready to obey God can understand and truly be a part of this kingdom of God. And I want to ask you something this morning. Where's your obedience? Is there a little leaven in your, in your heart? Is the Word of God in your heart? How is it permeating your life? Is it permeating your life? Are you, listen, where are you today in the scheme of your faith? If it doesn't mean anything to you, Will you, will you sit down the day and will you wrestle with the Lord in Scripture? And will you wrestle with Him? Beg for repentance. If you don't have a desire to mature and grow in grace and to become more knowledgeable, more discerning, more judge, you know, you know, judgment in relationship to the Word of God, will you repent of those sins today and believe in Christ? Will you turn to Him? Or, or will you be like these others? They don't care. They don't look. They don't have ears to hear. But what I'm telling you is this: for your encouragement, what God has begun in you, He will complete. And if you are here this morning and you love God and you love Christ and you love the Word of God, you should have nothing but the full confidence that He's going to increase that desire in your life. As you put your hands to this great gospel work, guess what? You're going to more and more be like Proverbs 4. The sun rising and rising in the day become brighter and brighter and brighter. That's your life. That's your life before God, like the sun. It starts out, it starts out it, it, not in full brightness, does it? But when it hits its zenith in the top of the sky, guess what? It's in full glory. That's your life. And that will be when he comes back, maybe. When you stand before Him, you're made complete and perfect before Him. Guess what? You get to hear these words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Come and receive what my Father has prepared for you before the foundations of the world. What words? Do we deserve them? We do not. But by God's grace and goodness, we can have them in Christ. Let's pray.